Your Bible's with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. What a blessing it was to celebrate with Miss Jan. Her birthday yesterday turned 90. And what a blessing she is to us, our church family, and to to me, always an encouragement after I, I get done. You kind of wonder how things come out, and she just uh, she always seeks to encourage me, and I'm thankful for that. And um, so we uh, happy you turning 90. You get to celebrate more than one day, so I take a couple of weeks and just uh, <laughs> enjoy it. Amen. Uh, recall a story this week from a missionary and pastor in Ukraine. Uh, they. Uh, woman in his congregation who was 80, who is 80, uh, and she was walking to church. It was a 45-minute walk for her, and she was stopped by some Ukrainian soldiers um, because of the curfew asking her where she was going. She says, I'm going to church, and then she went on to tell the soldier that there must be the worship of God, and then so she went on to um, to meet with her church family and they as they worship the Lord together. So thankful that we have a faith that has been tried and tested throughout the centuries. And God is near us, not only in our good times, as some people preach, but, but he carries us in difficult times. Uh, and in fear and trouble, we can count on him to sustain us. And so we're um, thankful for those, those little bits of seeing God's hand at work in people's life. It isn't just there. I know uh, that as you've been reading and and following along, maybe missionaries and other places that you're staying uh, in contact with, just the the amount of people flooding out of Ukraine. I think one one source said somewhere around 830,000 refugees so far coming out of Ukraine. Uh, so that is a a lot. I know our missionary Marcy uh, said Hungary this week has received up to 140,000 refugees coming across the border at this time and uh, and pray for Marcy. Uh, the Lord has opened up a great door of opportunity for him and Hosu, another missionary that we support there and um, pastor we support in Hungary. Uh, he'll be with us this summer, but uh, given great opportunities to show the love of Christ and share much of what we've been talking about in chapter number 13 of showing love and caring and meeting needs of others. Uh, Marcy is... Um, taking in three Ukrainians so far and uh, looking at maybe taking more in his church building as they get that worked over as, as well as helping supply uh, people that are doing the traveling and, and bringing people across the border. So he's got a great door of opportunity open to him. So uh, thankful to see God bring in support, extra support is uh, coming in uh, through man. And you can see Ed about that if you want to... Um, see how you might want to help with that. Uh, people have been giving to help cover the cost of food and, and gas and other things that, uh, that are needed there. So thankful for God's provision, thankful for his obedience in that church there that we can, uh, we can be confident uh, uh, that they are um, doing the Lord's work. So pray for them and let's, uh, let's continue to see how God will work uh, in the days ahead. You have your Bibles open to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 13. We're going to read the final five, six verses, beginning in verse number 20. Let me begin reading for us. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again the Lord, or who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, 
by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Read all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Uh, Grace be with all of you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this morning. We can gather together. We just pray that you would use this time in our life to strengthen us, encourage us, speak to us uh, through your word. Help me to uh, speak clearly. Lord, help us to listen clearly. Give us uh, and strengthen us in our faith and help us to be obedient uh, to what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, we have been walking through uh, this colorful and deep um, exposition of Jesus, this letter to the book of Hebrews, a little over a year now, and we finally come to the last section of it, uh, and it is, uh, it is challenging as you think back over this and, and look at all that has been said, you realize, much like the writer here, uh, it is just a brief exhortation or explanation of what God has given to us in these 13 chapters. Uh, we have barely scratched the surface in many ways of what, uh, what God has given to us in this letter. Uh, it just goes to show you the wealth and depth of God's word. And... And reminds us that as we have seen it, Lord willing, we have, we have gotten a little bit of understanding of what's going on throughout the pages here given to us. It has been a letter uh, summing up in one way the whole religious system of the Old Testament as he describes it as a, a shadow. And if you were raised up in a Jewish home as a child, you you might find that a bit um, startling to hear that all that you have held to and, and looked at and thought of as something without a substance, something that was just a form and not the, not, uh, not the real thing. And yet the writer does tell us and, and point us beyond what we look at in those shapes and shadows and, and figures to the, to the real substance of what it all means. It is an exposition or an explanation about Jesus Christ. From the very beginning all the way to the end, even as you find at the end of verse number 21, that final praise of his work of sanctification is that it is through Jesus and it is to him that glory belongs forever and ever and ever. In one way we find this is one of the greatest books describing and explaining to us who Jesus Christ is. And what he does so masterfully as we've seen over the time is simply go through little by little, uh, object by object to say Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's a better prophet. He's a, he's a better revelation of God. He is in the same imprint or image of God in chapter number one. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. Uh, he's a better high priest. He's all around better. He has a better sacrifice. He has a better access to the Father into the throne of grace. He is better. And what he does is not only 
call us to understand that Jesus is better in that sense and, and what should we turn back to? Something inferior. But not just something inferior, but what we turn to is inadequate. That what was old, what was, what was useful in its time served its purpose and has been done away with. Uh, the law and, and the sacrifices and all these things that they had held on to ha- have been fulfilled in this one person. There is really only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And that is a, a contemporary message, just as it was a transitional message for the Jewish people in the day that this letter was written. As they were living, seeing the, the reality of Christianity and its spread and its meaning since Christ has come to fulfill the law. And, and all that transitional time being called out of Judaism to embrace Christ wholly outside of the camp as we have seen in this letter. But it's contemporary for us because we, are, we, we battle with this intellectual debate of a plurality of ways and all the options that we have in the world, especially in America. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter who you believe as long as you're sincere or genuine or, or, or whatever that you want to add to that. And yet the Bible says there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. It's not just better in the sense of we have options, you know, as you might choose the middle of the road because it's not as expensive as the best and it's not as cheap as the worst. And so you kind of, you can get along with that. But it is, it is better in the sense of it, it is the only thing left for us if we would ever find forgiveness and be right with God. That's a message of the gospel, isn't it? That it, Jesus Christ is our propitiation for our sins. He is the only way to make us right before God. Well, the letter reminds us about his sacrifice and and gives us all of the explanation about how forgiveness is attained for us. But it is also a letter uh, to spur us on. Over and over we've seen throughout this the the encouragement to hold fast to your confession of faith and persevere and continue on and and press forward to the prize, uh, to use Paul's words out of Philippians. It is a message of endurance a message of perseverance. It is an exhortation that we might not stay in and be content with what happened in days gone by, but the reality of who Christ is presses us about how we live now in the moment today. In fact, you see the word today used several times in chapter 3 and 4. Today, if you will hear his voice, today harden not your hearts. Why? Because the, re- the, the reality, the facts, the truth about Christ has a bearing upon our lives. It, it is meant to, to have implications. It is meant to inform and instruct and impact the way you live day in and day out. Not just what happened 10 years ago in your life as you may have came to faith and, and repented of your sins and said, I believe, but, but what you do right now as you live this life, continuing to believe and trust and follow after our theology, our, our Christology, our, our understanding about God and his ways, our understanding about his son is meant to have a direct impact on us, calling us to faithful living and pursue and to persevere. It is a message about the high and loftiness and beauty of who Christ is, his eminence, but it's also a message about us continuing on in the midst of difficulty. Because you and I need to be reminded when things get tough to keep on. 
Because our feelings don't always match what we proclaim we believe. There are times in our life when, when we, we go through things and our feelings are telling us things that are not true at all. And yet we need to continue on by faith, trusting and believing and following after what God has told us. He gave us a whole chapter of that, didn't he, in chapter number 11 of Hebrews. Faith and walking by faith. And so we come to the end of this great letter given to us as we have studied this over the time and seeing the implications not just as a body because it is a letter to the church corporately. It is a letter for us to to read and to see as, as a body of Christ together and the implications of living out life and community as we've seen in chapter number 13 and all through that. It is a call to what the church should believe and how the church should hold fast and strengthen one another and encourage one another while it is still today, as the Bible tells us. But it's also a letter that is is irritatingly individual. It is something that speaks to us private or personally. Something that peers into our life through words of warning and words of caution and words of promise that that causes us at times to take an evaluation of what it is that we believe and how it is that we're living out and, and other times causes us to come and receive the grace and benefit of God as we draw near to the throne of grace. It is both corporate and personal. It is a letter that is meant to bless us and encourage us and it is a timely letter it is a timely letter not only because it speaks of our savior which is always a good season there's always a good season to hear of who christ is amen that's never out of date but it is timely because it speaks to a church in difficulty it speaks to a church that is suffering that is hurting and i remember last year as we were starting this study Praying where we would go and thinking about all the difficulty that the world was facing, the pressure and meeting together and not meeting together and all the things that we were working through and what it would be like in the middle of suffering. Uh, and, And the remarkable way that the writer deals with suffering is he points us to the confidence that we can have. Because we can't have confidence that the suffering will be over in the next week or year. The world and life will get back to the way it was or should be. But we can be persuaded and confident in who we believed and what he has done for us and the end that he offers to us. And and that he says in uh, chapter number four, there is a rest to the people of God. It is those kind of convictions and and those things that he has set, set in our hearts and our minds that help us navigate the things we can't understand and don't know about today or tomorrow. It is our theology and our understanding of the glory the forgiveness of sin, substitutionary atonement, it is those things that carry us in this turmoil we call life and the world in which we live in. And yet it may be, as we come to the conclusion of this, and I love the last few words of grace that he gives to us in these last few verses, it may be that we need to be reminded most of all that you're not alone. That you're not in this by yourself. All through this, he has given us great application of stand, uh, stand guard and, and hold fast to your, your faith and hold fast to Christ and press forward in the middle of difficulty. And it might seem like, at least in, in my perspective, it might seem like that, 
that, that you're doing that all by yourself. And yet he reminds us through these few words that he gives to us at the end of the grace of God that he has been talking about all throughout this letter. It isn't based upon your strength and your ability. It isn't based in your isolation because you are not alone. Look at this with me in verse number 20 and 21 as we consider this. I want us to look at this benediction of grace And he begins this with a prayer of blessing, verse number 20. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of his eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I recall a Presbyterian minister who was teaching a class, prison epistles, I think, I'm not sure. He was talking about the, ord- the ordination of ministers in his, um, his local district or whatever they call that in the Presbyterian church. And he said, during the ordination, the most, what he felt like the sentimental, the most impactful part of that ordination service was at the end when they, they've, preached and did all the things that needed to be done. They brought the guy up who was soon to be the pastor over this congregation. And after all the formality, that pastor would stand up and and give the benediction over the people. Uh, He would stand, as what the man would say, the, the, the teacher said, he would stand and proclaim the blessing of God over that congregation uh, being a fulfillment of what he understood to be found in Numbers chapter number 6. God tells Moses to tell Aaron to to speak a blessing over the people. And the verse 24 through 26 says this, Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And what we find here in verse 20 and 21 is nothing short of what we see in Numbers and many other places in many other letters. It is a declaration of God's blessing over his people. It reminds us even back in Numbers of what it means to live in the favor of God. To live with his face turned toward you is the idea of living with his pleasure cast upon you. Being in fellowship with him and all enmity and, and trouble put away in that, that fellowship and that relationship of favor. The children of Israel would have understood this as they had seen the, the display of his presence in their life. The blessings of his provision to sustain them in the wilderness journey. And as a, the priest spoke this over the people, it would be an idea of them understanding that with his presence came his blessings and his peace and what it means to be the covenant people of God. It was a declaration of that blessing of being in covenant fellowship that his has said his loving kindness would continue to lead and shepherd and guide his people. He would bless them. He would be merciful to them. He would be good and show kindness and favor towards his people. But not only is it a declaration of blessing, it's also a rich proclamation. Notice even the form here that you see is is given to us in a prayer. Now may God do this. It is not simply for our edification, though 
there are times when we hear some people pray that, that we, we grow. We're, we're encouraged and we learn and we're taught by their, by their understanding of who God is. But it's not just simply for our edification. It was a petition to God. It was asking him to do something, reminding us, at least this morning, that there's a balance to the Christian walk and the Christian faith. That in one way we are called to strive and to, to run our race and press forward and exert every effort in, in many places that the Bible tells us. And on the other hand, that there is a necessity and needfulness to accomplish that task through the power of the Holy Spirit. That you cannot and you're not meant to do it alone. That it is the power of God working through us, the enablement of the Holy Spirit and the continual aid of the Father to help us. Isn't that what prayer is for? Asking and petitioning God to do exceedingly abundantly above what we can ask or think. It reminds you this morning and me that none of us can do this life, live the Christian life, simply by our sheer determination, by our doggedness or our willingness or our stubbornness, by our, uh, by our own ability and our own strength. You know that, don't you? you? You know when you fall, when you fall short, and that you can't do this by yourself. And you wonder how many times you're going to fall and mess up. And the Word of God teaches us and, and instructs us in beautiful ways all throughout it that we need God's divine help. We need His, his work. The call, the, the thrust of this found in verse number 21, this call of sanctification is enabled through the work of the Holy Spirit through God's aiding grace all along the way. Here we see that given to us, this rich proclamation. Verse 20 really is a, a demonstration of the assurance of the petition that he is asking for. Verse 21 is the, is the petition itself. Notice with me what he says. Now may God of peace, the God of peace. How do you pray? I was thinking about that this morning as we were sitting here praying over the service and reading through this, I, I feel like I come to the Lord pretty much the same way every time. Same words come out of my mouth at the beginning of it. How many of you are like that? Don't you love the beauty and diversity the Bible gives us? How it brings us to the fullness of who God is. In one way, what we see here in this petition and many of the prayers in the Bible is how our, our understanding, the facts, the, the, the reality, the attributes of God are fleshed out in our prayers. And it really ought to be, and I don't think it always is, but it really ought to be the more we know God, the, the deeper we grow in our fellowship and walk with him, then the fuller our prayers ought to be. But he doesn't pray to the Lord of hosts. He doesn't pray to the Almighty One. He doesn't pray to many other things. He prays here and he refers to Him. He calls upon Him as the God of peace. It is, bring your mind's thoughts back to what Aaron is meant to pray, and that is living in relationship with God and fellowship with God and in His presence and in His favor, the outcome is peace. Remember, where he said, may the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you what? Peace. It is the God of peace 
The assurance of all of our petitions, the assurance of our salvation is rooted in this attribute of God, in this in this fullness of understanding who God is. And it isn't just found in the Old Testament. Paul prays at the end of Thessalonians, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Isaiah reminds us in 54.10 of the covenant that God will make for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Romans 15, twice we see this. God referred to the God of peace. Verse 33 says, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Over and over, we're brought back to the God of peace. It's fascinating as you see Jesus prophesied as we celebrate around Christmas time. Isaiah is saying he will be the prince of what? Peace. He is the source of all peace. I think here he's referring to this God of peace, the one who has come to make peace with us. To give peace in a war-torn world. And that's where we're at, isn't it? If it's this conflict, they should stop it tomorrow. Does that stop it all? Does that, that automatically bring about human prosperity and peace among the nations? We don't even have it in our nation. It's supposed to be the land of the free and some moral standard or whatever they want to call it. It's a scary thought, by the way. We live in conflict. Sin has brought about conflict, uh, conflict between us and God and conflict between each of us. And here we refer to God and the, the promise of the gospel as a God who brings, gives peace. A God of peace. Titus reminds us that this is natural in our human state, our fallenness. In chapter 3, 3, Paul tells the Cretans, which was fully aware of the conflict that they had. They were barbarians, pirates. They were sold out as, as mercenary, mercenaries. Paul tells them, you remember when we had our past days, malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's just almost like continuing stirring the water. You know that feeling. Maybe you know someone is like that. that every time you're around, something's always got to be upside down and stirred up. There's never a moment of rest. And yet when we come to realize what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, it is to bring us peace. To bring us peace. He doesn't point us to the holiness which cannot be touched or the unapproachable righteousness or a God of wrath. He points us as we come to to attain assurance of his blessings, assurance of his favor and presence with us. He comes to assure us of one who is coming with, with the intent of bringing peace. That is what Romans 5 tells us. As he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no more condemnation. There is no more, there is no more enmity and there's no more judgment upon those who come by faith in Jesus Christ. He is a God of peace. Now, doesn't that speak of his goodwill towards us? I don't know if you ever got in trouble in school. I, I imagine about five of you probably did. And you're probably in trouble enough to make up for the rest of the other ones who are not willing to admit it. 
And you get called to the principal's office, and it's just not a pleasant thing because you know it's not for peace. And truthfully, some of you probably have had fathers like that or mothers like that. They speak to you, but their will towards you, their, their intention towards you is not in love, kindness, and for your own benefit. So you hear a word like this and, and God calling us to come to him and repent of your sins. And, and we might wonder what his intentions are. Overwhelmed by the reality of what the Bible speaks. He is an awesome, overwhelming God. And, and yet when we see at the beginning of this prayer, even as struggling Christians who are facing persecutions are reminded again of this God of peace. His will towards us is moving towards us favorably. I don't see any greater example of that than in Jesus and his invitation in Matthew chapter number 11. What does he say? Come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the God of peace. Because he's the God of peace coming to bring peace to us. And there's also the peace that comes along with that. And that is the peace of mind and the peace of his presence in the middle of our circumstances. All of it wrapped up in who God is, the God of peace. It is he who has brought from the dead our Lord Jesus. Speaking of the resurrection, the great shepherd of our sheep. The Bible doesn't point us to a dead figure. He doesn't point us to a grave. It doesn't point us to put your trust into somebody who lived a pretty good life and, and they died in a pretty fantastic way. It points you to put your trust in someone who lived this life, who was crucified, and who lives again is seated at the right hand of the Father with an indestructible life. The hope, the Savior that it points us to, the, the, the promise that we have is indestructible because it's based upon his indestructible life, as the Hebrew writer writes to us. Not only by his resurrection from the dead, but by the blood of the eternal covenant. Look back in chapter number 8 with me just for a moment. Verse number 10, he tells, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after the days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know, all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities. Notice this last phrase in verse number 12. I will remember their sins how often? Not just for a month or two? Not just till they mess up again? He says, I will remember them no more. But the Bible reminds us that this declaration, this mercy of forgiveness is rooted in the life and blood of Jesus Christ. That's his whole argument as you get into that center of the book that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no, no victory over those things. There's no washing or purification. And yet here, because of this forgiveness, because of this cleansing, because of his life, we have fellowship with God. We have forgiveness. It is here that... 
that confirms for us the petition that has been granted to us. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter number 8? That if he did this for us, how shall he not also with him give us all things freely? He is praying to the God who has prepared all things for our salvation. Who has given us all things, the benefit of his grace and his pleasure towards us. In verse number 21, asking the petition as he moves along, he says that he might equip you with every good that you may do his will. How do we know he'll answer? Because he's been faithful in providing the means to enter into his presence already. And because of that assurance of what he has already done, we have the assurance that he will continue to work in your life and in my life and the lives of those whom we love, that he may equip us with everything good that you may do his will. Doesn't it sometimes feel like you're on your own on that? And he says, no. The writer tells us, no, it is God who equips us. And the word equip could mean outfit, not what you wear, you know that, to, to, to build up. It could mean to mend or repair, restore, to put in order. In some ways, it means all of that. And, and, and all of that is seen here in this verse that God is doing in our life. It is God who is, who is mending our past, who is, who is strengthening our weakness, who is filling our emptiness. It is God who has taken those things that are broken and useless by the world's standards and by your own abilities and making them fruitful and prosperous. That's 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And through the comfort and the means of working in our life, equipping us, enabling us, helping us to live out the Christian life that he has called us to. It's God doing that. It's not you doing that. Thankfully, it is God who is working in us and strengthening us and doing those things. Jesus reminds us in Matthew or John chapter number 15 that it is the husbandman who tends to the branches, who cuts them and prunes them and binds them and does what he needs to that they may be fruitful. It's God's working in you. If you're his child and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, he has not abandoned you and left you to yourself. He is working in you to perform, equip to carry out his good will and pleasure. He's working in us. What a humbling truth that is. It's humbling by the very fact that it tells us that you're a work in progress. Do you know that? There's a lot of room in your life and I can say that with all confidence because I know there's a lot of room in my life to grow. It reminds us that in and of ourselves we have not arrived. We're not strong enough by ourselves. We're not competent enough by ourselves. We're not, we're not at a place where we do not need God's help or we're not at a place where we do not need God's improvement. He is working in us and it's humbling. It is sometimes the fall of our own pride that reminds us of or that tempts us to think that we've arrived. I don't know if you've ever fell into that category in your own life. Maybe you've met somebody. It's always safer when you said you've met somebody. 
who thinks they don't need improvement. It's humbling to be, uh, to be brought back to that it is God who equips us and not we equipping ourselves. Now, there's things that we do. There's obedience. There's trust. There's following after and faith and all of that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's God's work in us that brings prosperity to carry out his will, his good pleasure. But it's also glorious. It's humbling in one sense, but it's glorious because you are a work in progress. God has not left you abandoned to your own resources and your own ability. And you should praise God for that. You should praise God that that it is he that is working in us to carry out the Christian life and not we ourselves. Because let's be honest, we're not really that good at it. Here he's telling them you're not alone. All the commands that he gives us all through this, the call to persevere, the call to live out and hold fast to your faith, all of it is not based upon your own selves, but based upon the power of God at work in you. He is faithful. They're not going at this by themselves. He enables us to carry it out, to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. I love that last part of verse 21, through Jesus Christ. No matter where you turn, Christian, you never, you'll never turn it in a direction where Jesus is not there, where he's not important, where he's not glorious. And you should never want to turn anywhere where he's not. Not only do we see a petition of blessing, prayer of blessing, I want you to notice, secondly, it was a long first point, the, the next one's shorter. <laughs> Secondly, a petition to bear with. Look at verse 22. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And so you may scoff at that, because it doesn't seem briefly. I think he writes in such a way where he realizes that out of all of what he has said and all the explaining that he has done, he's only scratched the surface of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. We should, we should shun the thought that we've got a good handle on the Bible and we, we know it all. Let God continue to teach us and strengthen us. But here he's speaking about the strength and the encouragement that is to be had, not only in knowing what God is doing, that we're not alone, God is working in us, but the, the fellowship and the, and the ministry of the word to us. He's saying bear with it simply means to, to put up, to tolerate, to accept. And sometimes in the light of it, accept something that is difficult, something that is hard. And, and if you read through this letter, you realize there's a lot of hard stuff. In fact, it's hard to explain. Not only is it hard to explain, it's hard to read. And depending on where you're at in your Christian walk, it is hard to take. And he's saying that we need to bear up with it. One of the ways God strengthens us and equips us is not only through, through prayer as what we've seen here, the others praying for us, we praying to God ourselves, but another the means God uses to do this in our life is through the proclamation, the preaching, the exhortation of the word of God. That's what he's saying here. I, I appeal to you, I petition, I, I plead with you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. How do we bear with it? Well, we bear with it by acknowledging that it is a word from God. That it is a word from God. Do you think of that when you read your Bible? 
when you enter in and you're, you're doing your Bible reading or when you hear someone stand up and speak, we, we kind of wonder, what is the guy going to say? We, we already evaluate him. We don't like the way he dressed. Maybe we do like the way he dressed. don't like the reflection off his glasses. We like the reflection off his glasses. We don't like his accent. We do like his accent. We don't understand a thing that he says. Maybe we do. And, and so all of these things go in our mind. Now, you know me long enough, so maybe you don't go through all that at this point in your life. Hopefully you got over that. I'm trying to change as much as possible. Each trip back to Tennessee, I, I regain my uh, language of Canaan, I guess, right? No. And sometimes it is easy for us to approach preaching and approach the Word of God, whether it's teaching or preaching or, or even our own devotional readings, that's a good thought. But we can't bear with, we'll never grow and be strengthened if we don't first acknowledge that the clear preaching and teaching and explaining of God's Word is a message from God Himself. It speaks with His authority. We must acknowledge that. That's why it's always good if you're on this side of the pulpit to always point back to the verse and say, look, so that you may argue with God, not me. But not only do we bear with the word of God and grow by it, uh, even a hard word, because let's face it, sometimes we like the easy stuff. And with that, I'm with you. I don't think there's any more difficult passages in this book than preaching through the warning passages as I was preparing for that and wondering how in the world you're going to say this. I like to be blessed and encouraged. But we need to bear with those things that are difficult as much as we bear with those things that are blessings. And the reason, not only do we need to acknowledge that it is God's word, we need to humble ourselves. Beloved, can I just encourage you not to, not to think yourself so good that you have no room for God to correct you. Not to think that you're so good. You know, don't we do that sometimes? Well, if so-and-so was here, that was a good message for them. I know you don't say that. You're more sanctified than I am. But if we're to benefit from the word of God, we must humble ourselves and realize God speaking to me. Directing and, and speaking into my life. There's always room. And it is pride which hinders our confession and repentance. It's pride of our own life. Pride of our own arriving. Pride of the fact that we have no need. It is that kind of pride which hinders and, and stunts and slows down the forward progress in the Christian life. So we need to not only acknowledge it as being God's word. We need to humble ourselves. We need to humble ourselves before it. And third thing, I would say we need to submit ourselves to the teaching of it. Exhortation or encouragement was for their good to obey. You don't have to show your hands. I would ask you to, but you don't have to show. How often has your procrastination allowed the sermon that you've just heard fall to, fall to the ground, leaving you unaffected? You know, the things that we say sometimes, well, that's a good idea, and I'll think about it later. And later never comes. The word of God is given to us and, and God speaks to us and instructs us so that we might submit to its teaching, that we might humble ourselves, that we may grow by it and, and walk in obedience to it. And I would say that every time we meet together, pray that, that God would speak to us in such a way to, to correct us if there's correction that needs, to, to strengthen us where strength is needed and that we might submit to it where submission is needed. 
The problem with the children of Israel was not that they didn't have God's word. And not that they didn't have prophets who would come and preach it day in and day out. But that they wouldn't hear it. Now they heard it, right? They, they heard the guy talking. But they didn't submit to it. They did not obey it. And so here he's telling the church, bear with it. Accept it. Receive it. Follow it in obedience. Thirdly, I would just say this. Not only... We see a prayer of blessing, a plea for bearing up. Thirdly, I would say just an encouraging reminder that we are not alone by a partnership of the brotherhood. Notice with me verse 23 through 25. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes. I'm not saying Paul wrote the letter, but some would point to that and say Paul wrote the letter. I don't know. He goes on and says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy. Send you a greeting. Grace be with you all. Maybe it is a harder trap for us today than it is or it was back in those days to think that you're just on an island all by yourself. With the media and with the email and the ministries that go on constantly getting updates and reminders of this work and that work and missionaries and all those sorts of things, it, it short, sort of broadens our perspective of the Christian church. And we have brothers and sisters going through many things that we're going through all over the world and sometimes worse. I think there's sometimes maybe you and your own struggles and your own sorrows can get like Elijah who said, what, what did he say anyway? I'm the only one left. God's got a great sense of humor and says, oh yeah? (laughs) 7,000 haven't bowed the knee. What do you mean you're the only one left? And he needed to know that. He needed to be reminded that he was not alone in his struggle. He was not alone in his fight. He was not alone in what was going on in the world. God had reserved. He had had saved 7,000 from... Uh, from the nation of Israel had not bound down to Baal and defiled themselves. And can I say that maybe, maybe this is just a good word for you today to grab a missionary card and write one of them a letter and tell them, you know what? The brothers and sisters from Pasico send you greetings. You're not alone. Maybe they need to know that the Johnsons in Mexico, Marcy in Hungary or Nancy Lee, Taiwan. Maybe we need to be the ones encouraging our missionaries and others that, that we have a brotherhood and we're in this together praying for them and encouraging them and strengthening them. And what a joy that is. Isn't that like a shot in the arm, so to put, or so to speak, when you find out someone is a, a brother in the faith or, or together with you in this? And can I say that in your difficulty, whatever's going on in your life, you're not alone? Just say missionaries in foreign fields are not alone. You're not alone in your walk. Christ is with you. God is in you, strengthening you through the power of the Holy Spirit. The the word of God is there to speak to you and encourage you. And and we're here as well to pray for you and walk with you. You're not alone. Let me just finish this way. If I could, there's nobody like Jesus. There's no Savior like him. There's no other religion, no other promise that, uh, that holds up to the promise that he gives to us. And if you don't know him, I would, just, I, would, I would plead with you, why wait? He 
stands offering with goodwill towards you that if you would come to him, he would no wise reject you. But he would bring you to himself. He would give you forgiveness, cleanse you, and he would equip you with everything good that you may do his will. And as we as a church persevere and as we live out this Christian life in the middle of our difficulties and the tiredness that we find ourselves, let me just remind you, you're not alone. God's in it with us. And we may stand back sometimes like Moses when he says, go tell Pharaoh to go do this. And Moses said, what? I can't do that. And he says, well, I'm going with you. We said the same things to the disciples, didn't he? Go to the ends of the earth, and by the way, I will be with you always. And church, can I say, he's with us in the middle of all this. He's with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us. Thank you for the way over the past year and and a month that it has impacted us and changed us and formed us. Lord, I hope. It has strengthened us as we put our faith in Christ and we trust him. We long to see him. What a glorious Savior you have given to us. What a, what a move of grace and favor that we have found in him. So, Lord, I just pray for each one here this morning as we close out this time of worship that you would just encourage them, strengthen them, work in them, or remind them even in their own weakness, that there your strength is made perfect. Lord, we pray for your will to be done in our lives as, as your people, as a congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.